Hi everyone, welcome to STEPS audio channel. We are very excited to share our content from STEPS events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. We're going to start off by doing some of the boring stuff. Um, I'll tell you that last year, $1.5 billion was invested in Femtech, that is health tech startups focused on women's health and well-being. Before that, it was 1.3 billion. Sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to the more than 300 billion invested in health tech startups, it's a pittance. And in the region, we're starting to see incredible startups like these. Um, so fi let's find out what's, what's driving this, this sector. If you could all start off very briefly uh, to tell me exactly what it is that you guys do. So Sophie, let's start with you. Um, okay, so I'm the, is the mic on? I think it is. Mic on? Um, founder and CEO of Nubta Health. Um, we are a hybrid healthcare platform. We accelerate the detection, diagnosis, and treatment of chronic diseases in women. So focused uh, on the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. We do this by combining digital and traditional healthcare along clinical pathways. Great. And Baha? Uh, I work for the Deep Knowledge Group. We basically produce reports and uh, we uh, conduct or organize conferences to shed more light on topics like femtech, uh, you know, sharing insights and uh, statistics. We also invest in uh, femtech uh, businesses uh, here in the region and globally. Okay, Chandra. So, um, I'm in the business of creating safer periods for women. We have sustainable, safer period care products that we sell online with the objective of informing, educating, and making sure that these products are directly reaching our women at their doorstep while we are making our all efforts to make sure that the women is taken care of and we are also kinder to the environment. Anyone? Hi everyone, uh, I'm Iman, I'm the founder of Kedish. We are a feminine and intimate wellness brand that just launched out of Dubai about seven months ago. Uh, we create super luxurious, effective uh, wellness, intimate and feminine wellness products, but really at the core, what we aim to create is a safe space and community where we can educate and engage women in the conversation around topics of feminine and intimate health. Okay. Baha, I'm going to start with you, and not because you're a man, but because you come from the investor perspective and um, you guys do research on this space as well. So tell us what's been happening around the world and where this region compares, how this region compares. Sure. First of all, uh, let's not forget that the femtech sector uh, is relatively new. Uh, it's been around for nearly a decade. Uh, so having emerged less than 10 years ago, uh, many areas related to female health remain underserved today. Um, for example, femtech businesses and investments uh, have been predominantly focusing on reproductive health and contraception, uh, leaving behind several other subsectors uh, such as menstrual health, uh, sexual well-being, uh, mental health, and others. Uh, according to our most recent reports, um, North America continues to dominate the femtech market globally uh, with approximately 55% of femtech companies, um, uh, followed by Europe, which is home to 25% of femtech companies, uh, and Asia, minus the MENA region, uh, with 8% uh, of femtech companies globally. Um, now, the share of the MENA region from the global uh, femtech companies uh, reached 7% uh, by end of last year, uh, which is not bad, to be honest, uh, considering the nascent stage of the sector. 
uh, and one-third of femtech companies in MENA are based here in the UAE. Uh, whereas we know uh, innovation, uh, women empowerment, and gender equality uh, are all matters of national priority. Um, and out of those femtech companies in the UAE, uh, approximately 60% are addressing women's wellness and menstrual health. Uh, so different regions uh, focus on different subsectors, as you can see. Uh, but in general, uh, companies focusing on areas like menopause uh, and sexual well-being uh, are virtually non-existent today. Um, so while the sector is expanding regionally, uh, we are still far uh, behind other regions, uh, more developed regions like the US and Europe. Okay, thank you for that overview. Um, Sophie, why is women's health and well-being so underserved? Um, I think historically, uh, if you look at the global landscape for research and development, um, which is where everything healthcare-related starts, uh, women were wholly excluded from clinical research and trials until 1994. Still today, they represent only 25% of clinical trials, and 92% of those trials occur in the US and Europe, with the remaining 8% mostly occurring in the Far East. So if you look at populations in the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, um, particularly female populations, um, still today largely unrepresented, um, which, means that, uh, which means significant things in terms of health outcomes. So, for example, if you are a woman of African origin in the UK, you're four times more likely to die of pregnancy and childbirth-related complications than if you're a white Caucasian woman. If you're South Asian, you're twice as likely to die, and this is this is replicated across pretty much every area of healthcare. That's, I'm actually shocked. I don't even know how to respond to that. It's, it's ridiculous that women were included in trials in 94, and it, it, it's a life and death situation. Yep. Um, Chanda, if you can talk about the story of how Luzon came about, because that, you know, it's quite sad actually. Well, um, I think this is extension of what just Sophie mentioned, that there is very less awareness, number one, about what is women's health, what constitutes actually women's health, and how it should be taken care of. So for Lizam, it's been a very emotional journey. Um, though I'm not very vocal about it, but however, I feel that it's very important for the audience to understand where these femtechs are coming from. So my story started a few years ago, 2016, when I lost a friend of mine. I lost her to one of the uterine cancer, and like any other friend, I was constantly thinking about that what happened to her? What is it that she did wrong? She was such a healthy woman, spiritual woman, practicing yoga. She was an organic buyer. I mean, her house was full of everything organic. Then what did happen to her? So for her, I feel that that was the thing which triggered in me that I need to understand this better. What was it that she wasn't doing right? So when we all eat, live, and we do everything organic, what is it that we were not doing correct? And I reach a place where this seven-inch piece, dazzling white piece of cloth called pad or sanitary pad, every finger was pointing towards it, that this is the culprit somewhere, you need to look into it. Do you girls sitting over here, do you know that there is something called as organic pad? The pads, the traditional pads that we use generally have chemicals and plastic in them. Somewhere she used to complain, my friend used to complain about her periods and period-related issues, which she never gave importance to. There, was, there is hardly any awareness about it. Inside the women also, that these smaller issues might lead to something bigger. And then she just ignored it for some time, considering her pain or her discomfort was only because of she has periods. Period is just a normal, you know, routine thing in a woman's life. 
and it escalated to a level that she was diagnosed with cancer and eight months and the story finished. I still have goosebumps while I'm talking about it. I'm sorry for this. So what I'm trying to say is that we don't recognize, we haven't recognized enough of needs that we have in terms of healthcare. It starts basically from there. So Lizomba's board uh, started as a tribute to my friend, finding solution. Is there any other better thing that I can do? I bought some, you know, some products here and there and that Lizomba started on a journey to find the right solution and bring it to the region. I think the bigger message here is that we women need to understand what we need and be vocal about what we need actually, instead of shoving it down, okay, this is the way it happens, this is the way it should actually. There are so many things that we have just taken as a, as a part of our life without even recognizing. As a mother, you know, your child comes first. You always are worried about your child. So when I was doing my research, I realized that when it comes to pampers, a woman is ready to buy an organic pamper. But when it comes to a sanitary pad, woman is thinking twice. And the only criteria that came up in my research when women is using to buy a sanitary product is what is available on discount at Carrefour. I feel pity for all of us that this is our decision-making criteria. We don't stand up and see what is needed. We don't see what is our requirement and then move ahead and try and find the solutions for that. Femtech in general is seen as an industry, oh my God, What's so, you know, hoo-ha about femtech? There is a strong need. Women are different. Let's understand this, their needs are different. How you cater to your body is very different. I have sat with Sophie so many times and I really tell you, we have still not understood what is the bigger, larger requirement. There is so much need of so many femtechs to come up to be able to understand and actually make sure that women wellness is taken care of. So you're talking about, I just want to ask him out one thing, because this is, and then I'll come back to you, Sophie. Um, we, we, you're mentioning the need for education, and Iman, this is something that you guys are tackling head on. So right. if you can talk about the importance of that and and... Where, where are we with regards to how well women know themselves and their bodies and their needs? Right. I mean, I think that this space is definitely changing. Like, we as women are finally ready to create our own solutions for the problems that have existed for far too long. And one of the main ones is the lack of education and misinformation that's out there. For my personal journey, um, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer at the age of 21, and it was discovered during my very first gynecological exam. And I often think after my, di after my diagnosis, I often thought, wow, what if, I what if I didn't have the awareness? What if I didn't know that I should go and check and get scanned? what would my situation be like? And so that's, that's really what drove me to, to create Kaddish. Um, when I was diagnosed, I, I started to notice that there was such a gap in the product market around feminine intimate care of credible, safe, effective products that were gonna truly work for women and were truly in line with the things that she cared about and the values she cared about when it came to product. I also realized that there was such a lack of community and within that community, a safe space for women to learn and to have education. I grew up in the States where we received, you know, sex education in school where in other parts of the world, it's, it just doesn't exist. So for me, it was really important to create a space that 
was safe for women to come in and join in the conversation and was equipped with credible information from vetted experts in across the entire range of feminine health and wellness, whether it's a gynecologist, a, a, a naturopath, a, a um, intimate therapist, or uh, sorry, a, a Sorry, <laughs> a um, sex therapist, people that could actually bring credible information that women can trust. But I think the first thing that we've learned as a brand is really creating a safe space where she feels comfortable leaning into the conversation. There's so many cultural barriers that exist, especially here in the region, that, that block that. Okay. So if you wanted to say that. Oh, no, I was just going to give a, um, a, an anecdote about how often with everything on the table, women's health and hygiene is overlooked. Um, I was at the Swedish Pavilion recently, and I don't know if any of you have visited Expo or been to the Swedish Pavilion, but it is eco-friendly from floor to ceiling, and everything is made of wood, and all the food they serve is organic and naturally sourced and mostly vegan. And then I went into the toilets, and they had standard, cheap, chemical-filled sanitary pads. And I actually went to them and said, guys, you know, if you're going to if you're going to be authentically sustainable, you have to think about every detail. And I guarantee you, someone will have gone, okay, like, what can we do for them? Okay, and just sort of flung it there and won't actually have thought about it. And when you replicate this on an industry-wide level, it causes a real problem. You know, we shouldn't be an afterthought. Why, why are we an afterthought? What's, what's happening? Is it a meant to blame or is it... What is it? I don't know. Um... I have a theory which is that if you go back 50 to 60 years, um, the sort of the stereotypical or gender roles were very stereotyped. You had men who were the breadwinners, pretty much in every society in every country, and then you had women who were responsible for caregiving and conscious consumption, so for bringing things into the household in a way that was financially sustainable. And um, traditionally, I mean, the, still today, the vast majority of businesses are male-led. Um, female-founded companies represent a small percentage of the total. The, the number of female IPOs is still very, very tiny um, compared, I think it's 22, maybe 23 now in the history of IPOs, and there have been thousands. Um, and so when people started to build, let's just take the last sort of two, two three decades, tech-enabled businesses, initially they, foc they were mostly male-led and mostly focused on the things that, the sectors that men interface with, so things that were breadwinning sectors, um, whether it was uh, sort of legal, fintech, supply chain, logistics, e-commerce, but in terms of actually like connecting and driving through revenue. And only as more women have started to lead businesses that deal with the areas that they have historically been responsible for, caregiving, and within that I would put healthcare and education and, and, and family management as well, and then in consumption, have we started to see businesses spring up that are there to optimize those sectors. And so I think, um, I, I think there's, a, there's a huge shift in, in kind of a macroeconomic dynamic in terms of gender roles. Um, and I think as we see more women starting businesses, we will see more women-oriented businesses, we will see more women-funded uh, women businesses, and that does require a change in, again, in every sector, you know, more female fund managers, more female angel investors, more female wealth advisors, more 
female lawyers and legal teams who are doing the due diligence on female-led startups. But as, as that kind of dynamic shifts across the board, we'll start to see, uh, we'll, 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 we'll cease to be an afterthought. Hopefully. Um, Sophie and Iman, you two are the only femtech companies. Chanda, I don't know about Lizon, but I know that you two are the only ones that raised investment over the past year. Um, what was your experience? I know you, you're, you came through the, the venture builder, but you know, talk us through that experience of raising investment and how you're feeling now as you go and try to raise investment from the community. Yeah, I think my experience is a little unique. Um, my, in my previous role, I was working with Huda Beauty, um, a very big beauty company based here, and I had the, uh, the, the pleasure of working with someone who was a complete game changer in mm -hmm. the beauty space. And you know, just seeing, being up close next to her and seeing how she's been able to build this beauty empire really inspired me. Um, there was a time back in 2017, she had posted a video where she was uh, explaining how she was gonna start an angel fund uh, for entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs that wanted to start mission-based brands. It, I really think that I've always had this idea to start Kaddish, but it was really seeing that video from someone that I loved and respected so much um, that I really started to think, I could do this. And I put pen to paper and I developed a business plan. And I don't know what gave me the courage to do this, but I booked a meeting on her calendar and said, I have an idea. I want to share it with you. And it really was just that. It was a conversation. It was a business plan on a PowerPoint. And we went through it and she was open to the idea. And I remember leaving the meeting that day and it wasn't a yes, but it also wasn't a no. And we continued to have conversations and she was open to investing in, in the company. So I, I guess I have a, like an angel investor type of relationship. Now, as, I, as we start to prepare for our first traditional seed round, it, it's a little different. Um, it's, it's not someone that I've worked really close with and have this intimate relationship that is bought into the idea and the vision. It's really, you know, showing people our value proposition and the power that this brand can, can bring, to the bring to the world and not everyone understands those, that, that mission at the core. And so for right now, what I'm looking for are partners that, that are bought in and believe in what we are trying to accomplish bigger than revenue, bigger than sales, bigger than bringing products, but the actual core mission of what Kaddish is trying to accomplish. And that really is, you know, reshaping education, information, and, and bringing women credible, credible products in this space. Sophie, would you like to talk about your experience and what Iman might expect? <laughs> no! <laughs> You'll be fine. The, um, uh, yeah, I think had a, had a different experience for several, for several reasons. We're a series of um, complicating, compounding factors. So um, I guess solo female founder, new to the region. I actually had a co-founder. Um, but for personal reasons, health issues in his family, and then also his family kind of planning journey, he dropped out after 18 months. Um, we then brought on board another co-founder, our chief scientific officer, who sat with us through the kind of pre-commercialization phase of R&D. She then dropped out um, and went back to lab-based research. So solo female founder, and generally people here like co-founded teams. Although a lot of, a lot of female-led businesses are, do have a single founder, um, we were in R&D for four years, um, which again is something that you don't often do here. And 
Every single person who had invested into health tech companies that I spoke to here said, you will not raise money as a femtech company here. You need to be headquartered in the UK, you need to be headquartered in the US, raise your seed round there and then come to the region. And I said, no. <laughs> um, the women that we want to work with are here. The women who have been underserved historically are here. Yes, today, investors are our kind of customers, but they will not be our customers forever. And it might mean that it takes us a little bit longer, but we want to be a by the region, for the region company. And if we up and shift, we will, we will no longer be that. Um, and so we, we stayed here. We did a pre-seed round of $500,000 two and a half years ago. Um, we did that with 11 angel investors, ticket by ticket. We realized that um, we had a minimum ticket size of $25,000, and we were actually excluding a lot of women. So we only had two female angel investors in our first, in our pre-seed round. For our seed round, which we've just closed, a $1.5 million round, um, we, we created a special purpose vehicle. Um, and the way that um, SPVs operate is basically you have your cap table, so a list of the people that own your business, and rather than have lots of angel investors then appearing on your cap table, you have that special purpose vehicle that is a shareholder, and then all of your angel investors are shareholders in that vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so we set up an SPV. It allowed us to take tickets as small as $1,000. Um, we raised this seed round with 20 angels and two syndicates, and 70% were women. Um, so we managed to completely shift the kind of ownership structure for what was actually then a much larger round. Um, the uh, things that I learned from our fundraising journey, um, I, the third compounding factor also was that since founding NABTA, I have had three children. So I raised and closed our pre-seed round while pregnant with my second, and that is when we met. Um, yes, we, uh, last time at the AI um, uh, AI Everything Conference. Ele Eleanor was 10 days old. Um, we placed second, we won $25,000. I still have a picture of me with her on the stage. Um, and then I raised and closed this third round when I was pregnant and then postpartum with my third child. And that, that was, again, a complicating factor. People just don't expect, and I realized this from all the meetings that I had, to meet women who are pregnant or with babies who are also fundraising CEOs. Like, I would rock up at a meeting, and it would be just the person in the room, and, um, and I would arrive bang on time, and I'd knock on the door, and he would look up, and he'd see me, and he'd see this like big belly, and he would go straight, look straight back down and carry on with his work, and I'd have to be like, hey, <laughs> Sophie Smith, Navta Health, here to meet you to discuss investment. And, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> when, uh, and I, I, you'd be in cafes, and again, I know, Everyone looks different to their LinkedIn photos, but again, if it's a fairly unpopulated cafe and you're sat there, it's, at, at least like at least people would ordinarily look at you and think maybe this is the woman I'm coming to meet again. When I was pregnant or with a baby, they did not see me. I'd have to stand up and wow. basically dance around and be like, "Woohoo, I'm here." Um, so that was a complicating factor. Um, off the back of our fundraising journey, we have set up a movement. It's called #2022FemaleAngels. Um, our angel investors, and there are a couple of them here in the room, have been our biggest support. They've opened doors for us. They've 
talked about us, introduced us to other investors. We now have grand baby angel investors. So where our angel investor has introduced us to someone who's become an angel, who's introduced us to someone who's become an angel. And it made the whole fundraising journey much more straightforward this time. Um, the 2022 Female Angels Movement um, has a steering committee now of probably over 30 people, half men, half women, and its objective is to identify and publicly list 2,022 female angel investors for emerging markets by the end of this year, so by the end of 2022. We want to ensure that um, more women are investing, first and foremost, more women are putting their money to work, more women are getting interested in investment, and then as a secondary objective, we want those women to be investing into female-led startups so that two, three years down the line, inshallah, no company has to face the same, female founder company has to face the same difficulties that we face raising, raising capital. Baha, are a lot of the femtechs founded by women? Is that something that has come across in your research? Well, uh, yes, I think, uh, see, most of them are found by, uh, founded by women, but the, but the short answer to the level of investment in femtech is it's really low uh, globally and in, in our region. Uh, I'll share some statistics maybe to clarify uh, about Femtech from last year. Uh, only 4% of tech investments in life sciences uh, targeted Femtech last year. Uh, that, that's a low number, right? And the global venture capital investments in Femtech uh, crossed the $1 billion mark uh, for the first time last year. Um, I'd say that's, uh, that's good, but not really good enough. 65% uh, of Femtech investors are in the U.S., expectedly, uh, where innovation uh, and technology are pervasive uh, across sectors. Uh, and uh, more than $10 billion were invested uh, in U.S.-based companies up until the end of 2021. Uh, and the total funding of the femtech sector uh, was about $14 billion by end of last year. Uh, and this funding has been uh, going mainly to general uh, female healthcare, uh, the three other biggest subsectors that received funding uh, were reproductive health, uh, contraception, uh, and longevity. Uh, now, in our region, uh, approximately 9% of the global funding was invested in MENA's uh, femtech companies. Uh, again, not bad, but I think we can at attract much more. Uh, now, despite the small size of the overall femtech market in the region, uh, the UAE appears to be entering a new wave uh, of healthcare for women, uh, driven by many factors, uh, mainly uh, the greater awareness and openness uh, about female health topics, uh, the changing perceptions uh, about women's health issues, uh, the greater market accessibilities uh, for female founders, uh, the increasing demand also for reproductive health products and services, uh, and the growing interest from VCs and angel investors in Femtech, um, and uh, of course, government support and efforts uh, in this area. Uh, and there's, a, there's also a, lo a lot of uh, Femtech projects and companies that are set to launch uh, uh, this year uh, and in the years to come. It sounds really positive. But Chanda, it's not just investment that's an issue. Um, tell us about your experience of even getting your products on the shelves. Um, you know, when you start these, um, you know, mission-based companies, you generally bootstrap and you start from there. And very soon in the journey, maybe a few months down the line, you'll realize, oh my God, I didn't anticipate these will be my costs. 
Those costs, actually, they do not creep up on the top of your mind. The top of the mind remains the agenda that what is it that you started this whole project for. And then you start gathering your community around you. We are definitely, like Sophie mentioned, this community of femtech owners, femtech founders, who is working together to make sure that everybody can thrive. It's not about one area of investment or one area of femtech or one area of health that needs to be taken care of, from pregnancy to incontinence to sexual awareness to menopause. All are you know, equally important at this moment. So opportunities are very high. For me, what I can tell you in terms of investment, I don't know, know whether it is to do with me in person or me being an Asian or the concept that I'm serving for, but whenever I've sat in front of someone talking about the subject that this is what I'm building and I'm need, I need support in terms of finances, the first thing that I'm being told is that nobody's gonna invest in this. No one will invest in this. And the same moment, you know, that same moment, the desire to again go and sit in front of another person and talk about the same thing becomes a little higher. Because we know that these negations are not because they actually mean it. It's because menstrual, it's because probably women's health is still not understood. The importance is still not understood that much. The moment we grow to that level that we are able to understand everything, there will be much more funding goals and we are making our efforts, education is important. Very simple statistics like, you know, 80% of the women suffer from one or other menstrual problem throughout their lives. Now, 80% is a big number. Have we women understood that? 60% of the problems are probably because of the wrong products that you use. Or you do not go to the gynecologist on time. You postpone it. My friend's story is postponement of the problem. So all these things, when they understood, I think there will be much more interest from all the sides in terms of investment, in terms of support. Investment is one type of support. There are other types of supports also that we need. And this journey is probably going to continue for some time like this. It's growing. It's growing at a very smaller, very, very small space or very slow space and slow pace, uh, I think we just need to gather up to make a little more effort in the same direction. In terms of, I mean, you have a physical product, you, you know, it's sanitary, organic sanitary pads. Um, are distributors, retailers worried about the margins on that? Um, what's, what's going on? Why are they not as willing perhaps to engage? New product okay. is not acceptable just like that. One, you don't have the brand presence, right? So whether you are the best product in the world, whether you're gonna make you know, immense change in women's health, it takes time for someone else to understand. And commercially, when people are sitting on, the top, on, on that space where they are purchase managers, procurement managers, for them there is a guideline that what is it that you need to look into the product. That guideline, probably a new product will never be able to tick mark all of them. So there are people who are empathizing with the thing. However, the bigger retailers have still not looked into it. I'm not gonna name anyone here, but yes, bigger retailers have to start looking at it because it's kind of a responsibility of every human being, every single entity to be able to cater to that area. People who have experience of building brand, they should come up and stand along with us who are building up these smaller products, but at least come and understand what goes inside, what is the benefit that product is going to bring, and then you know, open up a little more retail. Online has been awesome. I would say online space is more forgiving, more accepting, more inclusive as compared to the retail space. How has the online, sorry, sorry how has the online experience been for you, Iman? 
I would say it's for us. It's it's still a challenge. Um, we are basically taking a a. A commodity or a type of product that women are so used to purchasing in the pharmacy space, and we're asking them now to come onto an e-commerce platform and purchase, which is completely different from their traditional practices. We also we for our products um, we only have one that is seen as like a traditional hygiene product, which is an intimate wipe, where the other product is more of a period care, but alternative period care. And I would say that, that that's still a challenge for us. Uh, with regards to the retail space, we actually have seen quite a, a large amount of support for a brand like ours. Um, we have retailers from the States, the UK, and Europe. We are, we're currently sold um, on Sephora Europe online only. Um, so we've We've had support and we've had these retailers come to us with this interest. But what about the marketing side of things online? Yeah, so that is a challenge um, and definitely something that we have faced since day one. Uh, you know, social media is so powerful. It's such a great platform, such an unfiltered space that we can really speak to our community in a, in a really powerful and engaging way. But what we are finding and a lot of the brands that are like ours in the feminine and intimate wellness space is we are seeing an immense amount of censorship. And I, I hate to use this word, but it's shadow banning. And we've seen it since day one. Um, the engagement on our posts, especially for the size of our community, it's the numbers are just like just incredibly low. And um, we've even had instances in which we'll post content and some of our community um, or our followers will take screenshots and say, oh, I'm getting this sensitive content disclaimer on your stories or your, your posts are not even showing up on our feeds or our stories. And we click into it and it's like a post with me and my mom. <laughs> Yeah. Talking about our feminine wellness journey um, or comments that say, you know, hidden due to inappropriate content. And it's like a comment from someone saying, you go, girl, this is beautiful. <laughs> so it's quite, um, it's quite sad. It's very frustrating. We are not the only brand that experiences this. Um, we've taken partners with other brands like Modi Body that, ser that sell period underwear, both here in the region as well as globally. And they're seeing the same thing. Um, so it's... it's why, why is period sex, female health, you know, why do we need to censor, uh, censor it? Why is it such a taboo? I think... Culturally, it is something that we have struggled to normalize for such a long time. Uh, for so long, we have told women in society that these are issues that you need to deal with behind closed doors. And now we are coming out and we want to talk about it openly and, free and freely. And unfortunately, I mean, the technology is amazing, but we depend a lot on technology to... Uh, filter what people may or may not see. And in our experience, there are certain terms or words that are, that are filtered or censored on these social media platforms. The V word, I, I don't want to say, I feel like I should and could say it, but when we say vagina, on social media, it is censored. Um, when we say period, menstruation, we find an immense amount of, of censorship. And I think it's because it's, it's in a system and a computer. But that's not unique to the region, is it? No, it's, it's, it's global. On it's these platforms, global. it's global. Yeah. Chanda, you really wanted to... So in terms of retail, the response has been good for us as compared to the you know, physical retail. But this challenge is an evergreen challenge. 
So, you know, again, not naming one of the platforms, they flagged our product as if this is explicit content. Maybe there was one word somewhere used, a period or vagina was used. I am not ashamed of using that name at all. Sorry for that. But, you know, it's, it's a very common word. If we call any body part, nose is a nose, then why is not vagina vagina? Exactly. And then why you're flagging it up? And why you're letting anything which is going to create some wellness for women, why are you blocking that? You know, when, you, when, a, when a gynecologist will speak on a platform or an online, she's if guiding a, a, a patient or an, a potential patient, she's going to tell, not tell you, oh my God, you have something there. She will definitely ask you, do you have a problem with your vagina or do you have something, you know, whatever problem. I don't know why AI doesn't understand this. AI understands it only in one context. I think we need to train our AI a little better. That's because AI is built by men. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sophie? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I mean, the, everyone knows that the hi historical reason is that previously any female body parts that were advertised online had to do with adult content. Um, uh, it's one of the reasons, actually, we switched to mostly illustration-based content mm. because the, the visual AI doesn't pick it up. Um, so we can advertise, uh, we, can, we can boost posts that show, um, you know, that show the female reproductive organs, tracts, issues, um, and, 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 and nobody realizes that that's what we're doing. But it's a big problem because people want relatable content. They want to be able to really see things and go, yeah, okay, I have that issue. And if you can't, if you can't boost it, you know, on a, on a good day, um, you might reach 2% of your total following in a feed organically. Um, the only way that you reach a greater percentage of your following and then people outside of it is to pay. And if you can't pay, you don't get that reach. Um, the, the issue that Chanda flagged as well about about offline retailing is a big one because um, you know there's a there's a huge markup in in in, in everything here. Um, sanitary products are not seen as an essential product, um, but again, for for every woman they are, um, and so everybody who works in the space is conscious of not adding a ridiculous price point. But most offline retailers here take between 35 and 65 percent of the total retail 65. price. Leave alone the cost of the product and the marketing cost. 65 goes to the retailer, rest goes to the there. So maybe I'm here only for charity then. Yeah. So if you if you don't want to add, you know, if you don't want to retail a price that is outside of most people's purchasing power and has them reaching for the discount section, then you have to swallow 65%, which then means your margins are smaller, which then means your likelihood of securing investment is lower, which means your ability to scale is, is, is also um, lower. So I think there does need to be a conversation about, especially with homegrown businesses, um, what kind of offline retailing support looks like. And we all know, again, this is still a very close and small community, and it most sales are made word of mouth and even if um, people buy things online usually they've seen them in a, in a shop first they've kind of interacted with the product they might purchase one and then they'll purchase everything else in the online store so for, for physical products there needs to be safe affordable competitive supportive offline retail spaces otherwise products won't get off the ground. And I think it's important to know that these companies are addressing half of the world's population. It's a big, big market. We have 15 seconds left to go. But if you could all tell me what's next for your femtechs, Iman. Uh, for us, we're really focusing on growth. 
Um, so, and that has a lot to do with our, our starting our seed round. Uh, we really want to invest in more products, but also, um, you know, have the resources in house to do so. Um, so for us, it's it's really it's really that, but also finding ways to engage our community in real, authentic, interactive ways and. You'll, you'll see something that is very tech-inspired coming from the brand soon. Very excited. Chanda? Well, community is definitely in because that's the only place where you can actually talk about and inform your audience. We're definitely going to focus a lot on the teenagers. We want to catch them young. Their education has to start from the very beginning. I work with a lot of schools, especially one of them has now agreed to keep a vending machine, uh, which they want to give their students free vending, uh, free period products, which is a fantastic news. One this happen, I will definitely discuss about it. Our more focus will be to grow the brand to make sure that every single product that a woman is using, it's been certified, it's been vetted properly and put on our platform for the women to use and check what goes inside. The transparency will be our keyword and we want to create a platform where we have lifestyle period care products. If beauty is lifestyle, why can't be period care lifestyle? Exactly. Baha, more investments in the region? Well, I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, females represent 50% uh, of the total population. So there's a great need and a great potential. Uh, I think especially that the femtech sector is still in its infancy stage right now. Uh, and I think there's a lot of potential in new technologies, new investments, uh, new femtech companies. And the reason female uh, healthcare has garnered so much attention in recent years is that there has been a kind of a sociocultural paradigm shift, like Sophie mentioned earlier. So uh, the stigma around, the stigma attached to female health issues is, is gradually disappearing. And I think that's good for the overall sector. And hopefully we're going to see more investments uh, and femtech companies in the future. And Sophie, what's next for Napta Health? Um, so like I said, we're focused on chronic disease and really predominantly hormone diseases in women. Um, we want to scale now the platform across the UAE. We'll be going into Saudi later this year. Um, but our goal as a company is, is to empower women to effectively manage their health. And what that looks like for us is eliminating the long, long gap that exists today between getting women from symptom to diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis, and then getting them the health they need post-diagnosis. So we want to work with as many women as possible to help them identify the chronic diseases that are preventing them from achieving their goals here in the UAE, um, and then take that work across the region. All right. Sorry for going overboard, but thank you, everyone, for joining, and give our panel round of applause. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Anagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.